0: to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. After the Second World War between 1947 and 1957, there was a scare in America and other countries that had only just recently been allies of communist Russia against Nazi Germany. These included England, Australia, Canada. The scare was... That their countries were infiltrated with communist agents everywhere. As the old Garfield joke goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. The scare had more substance than people ever knew. It's not the number of communists working in your country to betray your country that matters. It's what power they had, what positions they held, and what access to vital, top-secret information they had. The democratic regime that was ushered in with the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt swept into office with its supporters, many significant people, who were either communist spies or fellow travellers, people sympathetic to communism. They were the people who Lenin called useful idiots. So the problem of having your top secrets, including vital intellectual property, handed over to the communists didn't begin in 1947 began in 1933 when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was sworn into office and immediately recognized communist Russia. The man who was destined to play a major role in dragging America into a war with Japan to advance Joseph Stalin's goals was a man with the very traditional and American-sounding name of Harry Dexter White. He was not then and never was a member of the United States Communist Party, But he was a spy working and reporting variously to members of the United States Communist Party and later to Stalin's secret service agents in the GRU located in the United States, mostly thanks to Roosevelt giving diplomatic recognition to Russia against his experts' advice. What motivated Harry to betray his country isn't known, but he had more than almost anyone else to do with the air force of the Imperial Japanese Navy arriving over Pearl Harbour on 7 December 1941 to attack his own country. In this program, I'm going to look at how America and Japan were tricked by Stalin into going to war with each other. This program isn't the end of what Harry got up to, But that is for another program in this series. Harry was a Harvard graduate in economics. He got a job with the Treasury Department in 1934. He rose quickly through the ranks. I wonder if his communist friends helped him along the way and ended up as the right-hand man of Roosevelt's powerful Secretary of Treasury, Henry Morgenthau. He started working for the Soviet secret police, the GIU, from 1935. His agent's name was at first, but later designated as jurist. One of the damaging side effects for Stalin that came from signing the non-aggression pact with Hitler in August 1939 was that a lot of communists and communist sympathisers who had been willing to spy for Russia to bring about the inevitable victory of the international communist revolution led from Moscow felt betrayed. For whatever reason, in this period of the Stalin-Hitler pact, Harry was cut loose and stopped being used as a spy by the Russians in the period after August 1939. Beria, head of the Russian secret services, recalled hundreds of Russian spies while he conducted one of the purges, much loved by communists of the Russian intelligence services. After the neutrality pact with Japan had been entered into by Stalin in April 1941, Harry became very important to Moscow again. Moscow had to reconnect him back into the system, but there was a problem. Harry's handler, a man that Harry trusted and liked working with, had been a Russian spy named Ishak Akhmerov. Harry knew him as Bill Grinky. Ishak had been recalled to Moscow from Washington after breaching protocol – by marrying the niece of one of the leaders of the Communist Party of America. Iskak was a Russian resident, an agent embedded in the Russian embassy in Washington, which was one of the reasons why Roosevelt's advisers had told him not to recognize Russia. Iskak was one of their top men in the Washington Post. He had directed 10 of the highest level Soviet agents working in the White House. Yes, Roosevelt's administration was riddled with communists. Because of his sins, Iskak was kept under house arrest in Moscow and wasn't ever going to be allowed to return to Washington. But since he had established a very close relationship with Harry, and Harry trusted him, a cover story was needed to get a new handler for Harry up and running. Iskak knew Harry's routine, so the GIU asked Iskak to brief a young NKVD agent by the name of Vitaly Pavlov. About Harry, Vitali arrived in Washington in mid-May 1941. He phoned Harry, told him that Bill was tied up in the Far East, but had asked him to pass on a message to Harry. After about 18 months of not hearing from Ishkak, Harry was happy to make contact again with his dear friend, well, as close as he was ever going to get. Harry and Vitali met over lunch the next day, probably 21 May 1941, at the Old Ebbett Grill, Washington's oldest saloon, and conveniently only a few steps from the White House, and it's still there today. Harry was told that Bill was visiting China, trying to figure out the American and Japanese attitudes. Bill, Harry was told, was in a state of constant worry over the expansion of Japan into Asia. In case you didn't catch my previous program, it was Stalin who was encouraging Japanese expansion into Asia and the Pacific and away from Russia. Vitaly pulled out the note that he said Bill had wanted him to give to Harry. The note suffered that weird disconnect from reality that you get from the communists. It outlined Bill's, actually the Soviets' plans to get the U.S. Treasury to impose draconian export controls on Japan in retaliation for its aggressive moves in Asia, accompanied by a point-blank demand that Japan withdraw its forces from Manchuria and China and, a no less peremptory and very bizarre demand that Japan sell the bulk of its arms production to the United States. The last is just weird, and I'll skip over that for the moment. To the Japanese, with their code of honour, the demands to withdraw their forces from Manchuria and China contained in this note would be an extreme, unwelcome provocation from the United States that would cause a serious loss of face to the Japanese if they complied. The export controls would affect key raw materials, Japan needed to continue its war in China and its other options for new wars, possibly against Russia. The end result of a demand like that would most likely be Japan going to war with America. Harry was impressed at the note. These were exactly his thoughts about how America should handle Japan. Well, probably not the bit about selling the bulk of its arm production to America, which was just weird, after Harry finished reading it he started to fold up the note to put into his pocket Vitali told him it was best that Harry memorized it and give it back now Vitali said he was heading out to China himself to meet up with Bill So Harry reread and memorized the note and then handed it back to Vitali Vitali asked Harry whether he could let Bill know that Harry would push that agenda through at the treasury Harry told him Tell Bill this from me. I'm very grateful for the ideas that corresponded to my own about that specific region, and I believe, with the support of a well-informed expert, I can undertake necessary efforts in the necessary direction. Within a few days of his meeting with Vitaly, Harry had written out his draft of what he remembered of Bill's proposals for the demands and the action that the United States government should take against Japan. Bill's proposals took anti-colonial swipes at England's empire in Asia, including a promise that Churchill would give up England's Hong Kong concession, although no one had asked Churchill if he agreed to that, which he would never have done. The USSR as a massive empire itself, one that would become immeasurably greater by the end of World War II, the communist stance against colonialism is, to put it kindly, amazingly hypocritical, but I would never expect anything Else, Harry's memorandum to Morgenthau, dated 6 June 1941, read like a piece of communist propaganda, which it was. Harry's memorandum proposed that Japan withdraw all military naval air police forces from China, boundaries as of 1931 from Indochina and from Thailand, a country which Japan didn't have any troops in until after it attacked Pearl Harbour, withdraw all support from any government in China other than that of the national government. Lease at least once to the U.S. government for three years up to 50% of Japan's naval and air strength. Another weird proposal. And sell to the United States up to half of Japan's current output of war material and to sign a 10-year non-aggression pact with the United States, China, the British Empire, the Dutch Indies and the Philippines. Perhaps Harry felt that Japan needed to be offered a sweetener and he included in the proposal that the US would offer Japan, as a bribe I guess, a $3 billion loan at a low rate of 2%. Morgenthau saw the swipes at England as not being appropriate for a country that was almost certainly going to be a vital ally of America in the coming war with Germany, at least. Roosevelt had a lot on his plate at the time. It was known that Hitler would soon invade Russia. Overall, the war for England was going very badly, and Japan wasn't a priority, just wasn't a priority at this time. Morgenthau filed the memo away without showing it to Roosevelt. He later reproduced it only after he had retired when he wrote his memoirs long after the war. Then the expected invasion of Russia happened on 22 June 1941. Russia appeared to be collapsing under the expert ferocity of the well-oiled German war machine. Perhaps the lure of a collapsing Russia helped things along in the Japanese government. In August 1941, Japan put out peace feelers to Washington. On 6 September 1941, the Japanese ambassador handed the American Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, a proposal from Tokyo to withdraw its armed forces from China as soon as possible, not make any advances on any of the European colonies in the Pacific, and hinted that if America entered into the European war against Germany, Japan would refrain from becoming involved. Surprisingly, the Americans simply rejected the Japanese offer a few days later on 9 September without any counteroffer being put. This was an unworldly way to respond to Japan's offer, one of the many strangely innocent unworldly responses that would come from Roosevelt during World War II. The outright rejection of that offer was to lead to the collapse of the government of Prime Minister Kanōe and his replacement by the army's warmonger leader Hideki Tojo, which set Japan more solidly on the path to war with America. The failure of this attempt at peace with America and the rejection of the extraordinarily generous Japanese offer that seemed to meet almost all American demands was a serious misstep by the Americans. In Russia in October 1941, the last of the Russian armies defending Moscow had been wiped out by the Germans at the encirclement battles of Vyazma-Bryansk. Now, nothing stood between the Germans and the fall of Moscow, possibly with the collapse of the Soviet Union soon after. You could almost feel the Japanese army being anxious to turn on their old enemy Russia and forget the idea of plunging into the Pacific. On 15 November 1941, a high-level envoy from Japan, Saburo Kurusu, arrived in Washington, D.C. He was authorized to make two offers, both very conciliatory, even if the wording would need to be tidied up. Proposal A was that Japan would distance itself from Mussolini's Italy and Hitler's Germany and would promise on the conclusion of a peace treaty with Chiang Kai-shek to withdraw from Indochina and to remove all Japanese troops in China within two years, except for garrisons in North China on the Mongolian border regions, that is, facing the USSR, and on the island of Hainan. If that offer wasn't accepted or wasn't acceptable, there was Proposal B, that the Japanese envoy could offer. It was a more generous proposal. Proposal B was for a temporary truce under which Japan would propose an immediate withdrawal from Indochina concurrent with negotiations envisaging the restoration of general peace between Japan and China. These proposals looked pretty good. It looked like a real possibility that there didn't need to be a war between America and Japan. That was good news. Well, not to everyone. Well, the Japanese peace proposals to America, seen through Stalin's eyes, was his worst nightmare. If Japan and America avoided war, that would leave Japan free to concentrate on Russia. Peace between Japan and China would mean that Chiang Kai-shek could concentrate all of his forces against Mao Zedong. Could things get any worse than that? Roosevelt wanted to concentrate on Nazi Germany, so his main goal would be achieved from these Japanese proposals. On 6 November, Roosevelt informed Secretary of War Stimson that he might propose a truce in which there would be no movement or armament for six months. In the Cabinet on 7 November 1941, Roosevelt said to Secretary of State Cornell Hull, I intend to strain every nerve to satisfy and keep On good relations with Japanese diplomats. Let us make no move of ill will. Let us do nothing to precipitate a crisis. When Stalin got wind of the fact that Tokyo and Washington might be about to resolve their differences, Stalin's man at the Treasury, Harry Dexter, was apoplectic. Harry promptly wrote up a memorandum, pretty much the one he had handed to Morgenthau before and had it delivered to Roosevelt under Morgenthau's name. It warned him that agreeing to a far-eastern Munich would sell China to her enemies for 30 blood-stained coins of gold. Obviously, Harry was a good atheist communist, not realising that Judas sold Jesus's life cheaper at 30 pieces of silver, not gold. To ensure that no Munich would be possible, Harry wrote out a list of 10 demands to be presented to Japan, which bore an uncanny resemblance to those his NKVD handler, Vitali had asked him to memorise back in May 1941. Typed up by White on 6 June 1941, the Soviet Pavlov version had demanded that Japan «withdraw all military naval air police forces from China, boundaries as of 1931» from Indochina and from Thailand. In Harry's November draft memo, which was actually handed over by the Secretary of State to Kurusu and the Japanese ambassador on 29 November 1941, known to history as the Hull Note, the wording was almost identical to Harry's June memo, except that the error of including Thailand was dropped. It now read, Japan will withdraw all military, naval, air and police forces from China and from Indochina. Harry's 26th November draft certainly looked like an ultimatum, and that was how the whole note was interpreted in Tokyo. On 1 December, Emperor Hirohito met with Tojo's cabinet. Tojo stated, It is now clear that Japan's claims cannot be attained through diplomatic means. The Cabinet agreed, voting unanimously for war. One week later, Japanese dive bombers launched their furious assault on the US fleet, anchored at Pearl Harbor on Oahu, Hawaii, along with nearby airfields. Stalin had pulled off another one of his master strokes. There was another important service that Harry had to perform for Stalin, but that's for the next program. What Harry got America to do next was one of the most amazing incidents, showing how Stalinist the West could be in their dealings with the Germans. You won't want to miss that program. As for Australia, we were dragged into a war in the Pacific which Stalin orchestrated, with, for many, many Australians, terrible, horrific consequences. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday mornings, starting at 10.30am. It's probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Carlsberg slogan for their beer. Probably the best beer in the world. If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, C-Y-K-I-A-E. I don't have time now to tell you what that means, but just listen in, you'll find out.